Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Well, my name is Jeff Smith, and I'd like to thank you for joining us for the CJC Weekly Bible Study. This is going to actually be a little bit of a different study. This is a study through the book of Genesis, first and foremost. And you probably know that because you've come here because it says study through the book of Genesis. But this is actually going to be a repeat. I don't normally, as a general practice, I don't normally redo a message. And this was a message that was given quite a while back. You may have been thinking, where are those original studies? We didn't actually record them when we started off. And so now I'm kind of feeling like maybe I need to go back and fill in some of the gaps. And so this is a repeat of the original study, the first study, the introductory study, the introduction to Genesis study that I did right out of the gate. I mean, this was the first one, but today it's just me. So it's a substitute for that original one. I'm going to say maybe even an inferior substitute because it's just me. It's not the rest of the group. But I will say this. You don't get this glimpse into our study. We start with prayer and praise. We take prayer requests, we pray for each other, we lift each other up, we pray for God to show himself to be mighty in in the lives of the people in the room and in the lives of the people that he's placed upon our hearts. But one of the prayers that I insist be prayed every single time that we ever meet is this, is that Jeff won't screw it up. And you're probably thinking, who's Jeff? I'm Jeff. (laughs) That's my name. My name is Jeff. And so I won't teach until somebody prays, dear God, please help Jeff not to screw it up. Or, you know, words to that effect. And so that's prayed every time before the recording starts. That's been prayed today. I prayed it over myself. I prayed, dear God, please help Jeff not to screw this up. And so that's where we're beginning. All right. So here we are. We're at the introduction to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis being the first book of the Bible. 66 books in the Bible. Genesis being the first. And Genesis is actually, well, what does Genesis mean? It means the beginning. And it comes from those very first words that we find when we open to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning. And that's what gives rise to the title, the name of the book, Genesis. All right, Genesis means beginning. In Hebrew, the title of this book is Bereshit. And Bereshit means the same thing. It comes from that very same passage. It basically means in the beginning as well. So whether it's in English, whether it's in Hebrew, which is the original language of the book of Genesis, it means basically beginning. All right. It gets its name from that very first verse there. One of the things about Genesis I should talk about is that there's a format of a sense to the book of Genesis. Genesis, unlike most of the other books that you'll find in the Bible, Genesis has these demarcations of different sections throughout the book. Different sections throughout the book. Now, let me start with just general overall sections. Number one, you can break the book of Genesis into two big sections, all right? Genesis chapters 1 through 11 would constitute basically one big section, and then the other big section would start in chapter 12 and take you to the end of the book, which is chapter 50. And obviously, you can see that's the more substantial portion of the book. The first part of the book is basically one-fifth of the material, And then the second part of the book is basically four-fifths of the material, just using generalities, round numbers, all right? 
In speaking of the two big sections of Genesis, those being chapters 1 through 11 constituting the first part and chapters 12 through 50 constituting the second part, there's a few places that are noteworthy to mention here as far as comparisons. In chapter 1 through 11, you have a discussion that's primarily about the human race, whereas in chapters 12 through 50, it's primarily about the Hebrew race. In 1 through 11, it's primarily historical information, whereas chapters 12 through 50 are primarily biographical information. In 1 through 11, you have basically four events, the creation, the fall, the flood, and nations, four events. In 12 through 50, you have four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, four people. And now just to give you a little bit of a taste of the main verse or the key verse from each of these sections, the key verse of chapters 1 through 11 is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, 15, God speaking to the serpent says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the main passage, the main verse out of the first section of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And then the main verse of chapters 12 through 50 is found in Genesis 12 verse 3. God speaking now to Abram, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you were to break down those sections even further, you find this phrase as you go through the book of Genesis. It's the Toledot, all right? That's in Hebrew. But basically, the translation into English might be something like, depending on the translation you use, it might be something like, these are the generations of, or this is the history of, or this is the account of, or these are the descendants of. So that word Toledot there in Hebrew indicates there's a section, all right? It, it's part of a section. Oftentimes, you'll find that Toledot, or these are the generations of, or one of those other ones, at the beginning, all right? At the beginning of one of those sections. And so as you go through, you end up finding 10 different places, 10 different sections, if you will. So 10 different places where that Toledot occurs, 10 different sections that you could partition the book of Genesis into, all right? But they're not evenly spaced. The book of Genesis, we look at it as 50 chapters. You would think, oh, 50 divided by 10, that's five chapters per section. But that's not actually how it works. It breaks up into nothing quite as uniform as that. Let me run through some of these. Here's a list of them. All right, the first one that you find is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And it says, these are the generations. I'm using generations, but your version might have something different. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. The next one that you're going to run across is in chapter 5, verse 1. These are the generations of Adam. The next one's going to be, these are the generations of Noah. And that's in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. That's in chapter 10, verse 1. Then you have, these are the generations of Shem. Shem is one of the sons of Noah. So these are the generations of Shem. That's in chapter 11, verse 10. And then the next one, these are the generations of Terah. That's in chapter 11, verse 27. These are the generations of Ishmael. That's in Genesis chapter 25, verse 12. These are the generations of Isaac. That's in chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Esau. That's in Genesis chapter 36, verse 1. You also see it in verse 9 as well. And then the last one, these are the generations of Jacob in chapter 37, verse 2. So those are your 10 divisions of the different sections that you find in the book of Genesis. 
But here's one of those things I was mentioning. These are not equal amounts of material per section, all right? So for the first one, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. That one's actually about four chapters worth of material, whereas the next one, the generations of Adam, is about one chapter, a little bit over one chapter. Then you have the ancestral narrative of Noah or the generations of Noah. That's about four chapters. And then you have Noah's sons. That's about one chapter. And then you have the genealogy or the generations of Shem, and that's a little bit less than a chapter. And then you go into uh, the generations of Terah, 14 chapters, 14 chapters for that one alone. And then the generations of Ishmael is seven verses. So you can see 14 chapters on the one hand, then it goes down to seven verses. The next one is the generations of Isaac, that's 10 more chapters. And then you have the generations of Esau, that's one chapter. And then you have the generations of Jacob, 14 more chapters. So you can see this wide range of amount of material that's included in each of these sections. But we get to see that there are sections, there are partitions, that Genesis is made up of these 10 different clumps of material of varying sizes. Here's another interesting thing as well. When you're reading through it, let me take, for example, the generations of Noah, and it becomes the focal point are his sons, in particular Shem. You look at the generations of Terah, and the focal point is not Terah, it's his son Abram, the original name of Abraham. So you see that each of these has a focal point. So the name of the Toledot, the name of the section that you're in, it usually is an indication of where it's going to begin, but it points in a direction that usually leads to the sun or the progeny or, or what comes as a result of following that direction. Victor P. Hamilton says, The Toledot structure of Genesis suggests a movement from a starting point to a finishing point, from a cause to an effect, from a progenitor to a progeny who is the key individual at that point in either implementing or perpetuating God's plan and will in his heavens and earth. So Genesis ends up becoming this wonderful book that ends up pointing in a direction. It takes you in a direction. As you're following the narrative, a lot of this material is narrative. Some of this material is genealogical records. So you've got this combination of genealogical records that provide sort of a framework for a, a narrative that takes you along in the story and, and points you in the direction that God's will, God's plan is moving. All right, So it's pretty powerful. It's pretty interesting in that way. Another thing about the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters have to do with the Fertile Crescent is the way that I was taught when I was in school. They talked about the Fertile Crescent or they talked about Mesopotamia. All right? Those were the names that were given to that region. Babylon might be another name later on that might be applied to that region. All right, So it's a region in the Middle East, an actual region in the Middle East, and the first 11 chapters take place in that setting. And then the second section, chapters 12 through 36, that takes place in what we would later be called the promised land, all right, or Canaan, all right, or later come to be known as Israel. So it takes place in the land that would future to the point of the narrative of Genesis, it would be called Israel. But at the time of Genesis, it'd probably be more appropriate to call that region the promised land. Some would even refer to it as Palestine, but I'm going to use the phrase or the phraseology of the text itself, and let's call it the promised land. It's the land God promised to Abraham, or Abram at that time, to Abram and his descendants, the promised land. That's how it gets its name, the promised land. And then the third part, Genesis chapter 37 through 50, those take place in Egypt. So you're going to find that Genesis spans or covers or takes place in the major regions of the Middle East. So as you're reading through the book of Genesis, recognize that's where the setting is. It's taking place in the Middle East. 
Another thing to notice about Genesis as you're reading through it, you notice that 80% of the material, all right, 80% of the material, Genesis chapters 12 through 50, all right, ends up concerning itself with four generations. The first 10 chapters, or I'm sorry, the first 11 chapters concern themselves with about 20 different generations, and and that's only one-fifth of the material. One-fifth of the book is devoted to 20 generations, if you will, and then the rest of the book, 80% of the material, the book of Genesis, is devoted to four generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's sons, all right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons. Those are some of the main characters that you're going to see in the book of Genesis, but there's other main characters that I'm sure you've heard of. We're going to meet Adam and Eve. I'm sure you've heard of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, main characters, book of Genesis. Cain and Abel. You also end up meeting Noah, big character. And then later on, you end up meeting Abraham, big character. All right, lots of material devoted to Abraham. And Abraham's wife, Sarah. So Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac. Isaac ends up marrying Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah have a son named Jacob. Jacob ends up marrying Rachel and Leah. They have 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes eventually of Israel, the land of Israel, the people of Israel, all right, the 12 tribes. And of those 12, the book of Genesis is most concerned with Joseph, but we don't want to miss Judah because Judah is actually the one through whom God's ultimate promise of a savior is fulfilled. It's through Judah's line, not through Joseph's. And you're probably saying, what? A promised savior? What does that have to do? Where's that? How do we get on that? All right, so let me let me back up a little bit here. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, it's the creation account. It's creation of the heavens and the earth, all right? And it's also the creation of Adam and Eve. And then in that creation account, after chapters 1 and 2 and chapter 3, you end up meeting the serpent, all right? The serpent deceives Eve, and that's what we would oftentimes call original sin or the fall, all right? So that's the first temptation and the fall. And what ends up happening from that chapter forward is this struggle. See, in the first two chapters of Genesis, it's almost like a paradise, all right? The Garden of Eden setting. And what's interesting is if you look at the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Genesis being the first, Revelation being the last. You look at the last two chapters of Revelation, and it's almost like a bookend with Genesis chapters 1 and 2 being the other bookend. Genesis 1 and 2, this idyllic, wonderful place, the Garden of Eden, the wonderful conditions and the situation between God and man. And Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, the last two chapters of the Bible, being a mirror image, if you will, of those first two chapters. So it's as if we were in this wonderful place, all right, man was in this wonderful, wonderful place with God, and then in chapter 3, you have the introduction of the serpent, everything falls apart, Eve eats of the fruit, Adam uh, does so knowingly as well, and as they say, the rest is history. All right. And it's from that point forward that it's this struggle. It's this, it's this experiencing of loss, this experiencing of pain and tears and death and sorrow. And then it's not until the last two chapters of the Bible, the last two chapters of Revelation, that you get to the point where there is no more sorrow, sin, pain, tears, or death. It's as if there's a return to that idyllic state that we originally could have had had it not been for the fall that we'll see in Genesis chapter 3. So what is it? So what happens? So there was this fall. Genesis chapter 3, there was a fall. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there's this promise. It's the first seed of a promise of a Savior. Well, what do we need saving for? A Savior from what? Well, what ended up happening when Adam and Eve sinned 
is that that sin carries down and pollutes the whole human line. So much so that you and I today have sin as a pollutant in our lives and a corruptive pollutant. In fact, a corruptive pollutant that leads to our death. Can you see why we need a Savior? And so there's a promise of a Savior in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's a hint of a Savior to come. And Paul takes the wording of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and he says that that is a promise. That is pointing to Jesus, the Christ, Yeshua, the Messiah. And so even in the earliest chapters of Genesis, we find the promise of a Savior and its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, in the Christ, our Savior. What would happen to us if we didn't have a Savior? Well, we would die in our sinful state. We would die in our sins. And what happens to a person who dies in their sins? There's no fellowship with God. You die in your sins. You don't get to be with God. You're excluded from the presence of God. And your destiny is eternal torment and separation from God. Now, I know this is a lot of material and we're drawing on passages from all through the Bible. But I wanted to give kind of an overall glimpse of our need. Our need of a Savior. And Genesis provides the reason for the need of a Savior, and it provides the first arrow pointing in the direction that ultimately leads to Jesus as our Savior. Here's another thing as well, as, as you heard I was talking about. Genesis moves us in a direction, and it covers 20 generations in the first 11 chapters, and then focuses down to a particular family, a particular person even, in the person of Abraham. What's happening in that situation is God is directing us. As we move through the book, the arrows are pointing to this person, to that person, to the next person, to the next person. Basically, Genesis takes us in the direction to follow the key people through whom God plans to do his mighty work, his great restoration. In fact, the whole Bible is basically a love letter of restoration, how God intends to restore us and affects our restoration or secures our restoration. One of the interesting things to notice about the people in Genesis, and in particular the people through whom God does his great work, the family line, if you will, following it generation to generation, father to son to son to son as the line would go, you find that these people are not perfect. These people are messed up. All right, and I can tell you, I'm messed up too. All right, we can find that we're in good company. We look at these people, and if you read, say, Hebrews chapter 11, you would think, man, these people never made any mistakes. These are pillars of faith, and, and so they are. We'll give them that. We'll give them the credit and the benefit of the doubt that Hebrews chapter 11 gives them. But that's not to say that they were perfect by any means. As we'll see as we move through the book of Genesis, you'll find these people have flaws. These people have weaknesses. These people struggle. These people make mistakes. These people do some crazy things. And you go, how God could you do anything with them? And you can't help but feel afterwards that if God could do something in their lives as messed up as they were, as bad of choices as they make, then maybe he can do something in my life. That maybe he can do something with me. Maybe I can be a participant in some way in God's plan. And I assure you, you can. You can be a participant in God's plan. Just because you've made bad mistakes, 
just because you've made bad choices doesn't necessarily mean that you're beyond the reach of God being able to do something in your life and through your life. So I want to encourage you with those words. As we read through the book of Genesis, you'll see some of those those bad choices, and God is still able to do what he intends to do through them. Another thing to talk about in the book of Genesis here, you find that the theme of that second big part, I mentioned the first big part is Genesis chapters 1 through 11, the second big part, chapters 12 through the end of the book, uh, starting with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then the 12 sons of Jacob. The overarching theme that you'll find over and over again in that section, in that big section, the 80% of the material in the book of Genesis, all right, is about God being a promise-keeping God. God makes promises over and over again as you read through that material. And the promises, if you could distill it down, are to the people with whom he's dealing. And he makes this promise of descendants. He makes a promise of land. And he also makes this promise of basically protection and blessings through a relationship with him. Did you hear that? A relationship with God. You can have a relationship with God. In fact, I would go so far as to say if you don't have a relationship with God, you need a relationship with God. If you don't have a relationship with God, then you're not saved. I know that sounds harsh, all right? But that's the teaching of the Bible as a whole. And you'll find that that's not unfamiliar territory if you're familiar with what the New Testament teaches. You, you need a relationship with God. You need a relationship with God. I need a relationship with God. We need to have a relationship with God. If we don't have a relationship with God, no matter how much religious-looking behavior we engage in, it's all for nothing. We can look like a good person. We can look like we got it all together. We can look like we're serving God. But if you don't have a relationship with God, then any service you do in the name of God is nothing. It's meaningless. You need a relationship with God. There's no substitute for that. You cannot work your way into heaven. It's not about what you do to get to heaven. It's about who you know. Who you know is a relationship term. You need to have a relationship with God. As we look at the type of people that God deals with, the type of people that God chooses to do his mighty works through, that family line and those individuals that we're going to run across, you find that they're not chosen because they're good. They're not chosen because they have good behavior. They're chosen based on God's will, that God in his sovereignty chooses them, chooses to do his works through them, chooses to orchestrate and to affect his plan through their lives. It's God's choosing more than their behavior. They don't have good behavior. Let's talk a moment here about who wrote the book of Genesis. We talked a little bit about how Genesis covers three major land regions in the Middle East, uh, the first being the Fertile Crescent, the second being Canaan, and then the third being Egypt. And so with Egypt as a clue, let me ask this question. Who wrote the book of Genesis? You're probably thinking, Egypt as a clue. <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? Who wrote the book of Genesis? Traditionally, it's attributed to Moses. Moses being the author then of Genesis, and not just Genesis, but the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we'll talk about these more in future studies, but I just want to touch on it just for a moment here. So Moses being attributed as the original author of Genesis, but here's the question, where is Moses mentioned in Genesis? It's kind of a trick question because he's not mentioned anywhere in Genesis. So where does Moses show up? He shows up in the Exodus 
in the book of Exodus, which has to do with the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt. So Egypt is our clue. Moses is our author. But wait a minute. If Moses doesn't even show up in the book of Genesis, he doesn't even show up till the book of Exodus. Is there a time gap between Genesis and Exodus? Actually, there kind of is. Genesis ends in Egypt. Exodus begins in Egypt. But there's a 400-year gap between the events at the end of Genesis and the primary events at the beginning of, of Exodus. So there's a 400-year gap, Moses coming at the end of that 400-year gap. So Moses wasn't alive during the events that are recorded in the book of Genesis. So traditionally, he's seen as the author, but in reality, he's kind of a, a narrator, editor of sorts. It seems like he used the Toledotes as different sections that he pulled together, perhaps based on written tradition or oral tradition or both. And he ends up being kind of an editor and an overseer of the information that we find in the book of Genesis. So he gets the credit for it, although he wasn't even alive during the time that the events happened. Here's another thing to notice as well. As we move through the book of Genesis, we're going to see the fingerprints of God all over this thing. We're going to see God's handiwork, God's design in the text as we move through. And you know what else we're going to see? We're going to see types. We're going to see pictures. We're going to see shadows, foreshadowings of Jesus himself as we move through the material in the book of Genesis. Another thing to mention is this idea of the law of first mention. You ever heard of this? The law of first mention. The law of first mention, also called in some materials, the divine law of firsts. All right. Here's what this is. Basically, when we're moving through the book of Genesis, there are several concepts. There are several words that we're going to run across that that's the first time they appear in scripture. And the idea is this, that the first time you run across something in Scripture is significant. It provides the ability to get some significant value and meaning out of what that concept teaches or what that concept stands for or how to define those words based on the first time that you see it. We're going to run across sin. We're going to run across death. We're going to run across the first mention of Sabbath. We're going to run across the universe, life, man, redemption, family, literature, cities, art, language, sacrifice. These are just examples of some of the things that we're going to run across for the first time. And in each of those instances, a first mention carries with it weight that we need to consider when we're trying to figure out what would the Bible teach me on this subject, on that subject, on this phrase, on this word, all right? So when we come to the Bible with concepts that we're looking for some insight, looking to the first time that those things occurred, will often reap great rewards. Regarding the law of first mention, here's a quote here from Arthur Pink. It says, very frequently this is of great help in arriving at the meaning of a word or expression. Since there be but one speaker throughout the entire word, and he knew from the beginning all that he was going to say, he has so ordered his utterances as to forecast from the outset whatever was to follow. Thus, by noting its setting and associations, the initial occurrence of anything in the scriptures usually intimates to us how it subsequently will be employed. In other words, the earliest pronouncement of the Holy Spirit on a subject very frequently indicates substantially what is found in the later references thereto. This is of real assistance to the expositor, supplying him with a kind of key to what follows. Benjamin Willis Newton says this regarding the law of first mention. The first mention of a thing, the very first words of any subject of which the Holy Spirit is going to treat, is the keystone of the whole matter. So I talked about some of the key characters in the book of Genesis, some of the key figures that we're going to run across. And like I said, some of those are familiar to you. Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, Abraham. Abraham's nephew, Lot, that's another character that you're probably familiar with. 
Hagar, Sarah, Ishmael, Isaac, all these different people. But at one point or another, you're probably going to say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you suggesting that Adam and Eve are real people? Because, come on, we all know, and science would tell us, that no, we descended from apes. If we descended from apes, where is there an Adam and Eve? There isn't an Adam and Eve. You can't have an Adam and Eve if we're descended from apes. They're just figurative people. That's probably what some of you might be thinking. That is not the position I hold. In fact, I would go so far as to say that's not the position that the Bible holds. For example, as we're reading through the book of Genesis, and when we're introduced to the creation, all right, and it talks about a creation, six days, God created the heavens and the earth, you're now confronted with a paradigm, a worldview, that's probably in conflict with the worldview that you've been sold or that's been foisted upon you since you were a child. And that worldview is typically naturalism. It's basically that this has been a long process over millions of years and simple life forms gave rise to more complicated life forms until finally, somewhere along the way, apes turned into humans and were a branch related directly to apes. You get what I'm talking about. The theory of evolution would fit in there and whatnot. So this is naturalism. This is a worldview, worldview of naturalism. The Bible doesn't subscribe to that. The Bible doesn't teach that. That doesn't come from the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is that God created the heavens and the earth, that God created male and female, man and woman, Adam and Eve. All right, let's look at a couple verses. And I'm not even going to appeal to Genesis right now. Let's take you to another passage. Let's take you to Matthew. Let's go to Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 8. It says, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? I should probably back up a little bit. Who is speaking? Well, this is Matthew writing the material. But of whom is he speaking? When he says the Pharisees came to him, who's the him? It's Jesus. The Pharisees also came to him, Jesus, testing Jesus and saying to Jesus, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he, this is Jesus, answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? I want to pause here for a second on that verse. He who made them at the beginning. What is that a reference to? Uh, That's a reference to as early as Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, if you look at that one. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. That's the wording right out of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So when we flip back over there to the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 4, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Who's he referring to? Who was the male and female? It's Adam and Eve. The Bible teaches that God created Adam and Eve, not as an evolutionary process that gave rise to humans and we have these figurative people that we attach the names Adam and Eve to. No, as a male and as a female, creations of God, direct creations of God. It seems to me that Matthew is trusting that Genesis is accurate, that Matthew is trusting that Genesis is historical. It's reporting historically what happened. You read through Genesis, and some people try to suggest, well, that's just poetic. Oh, that's just language of poetry. Well, no, actually, it's not. It's the language of narrative. It's not poetry. It's beautifully crafted, but it's speaking from a narrative perspective. Narrative suggests that you need to take the word seriously, as in this is what really happened. And when you read it in that way, and you understand that it's speaking narratively, that demands that the understanding be that 
That's historical. That's to be trusted as history. It's not myth. It's not fable. It's not legend. The Bible would say that's real. That's real. And Matthew here seems to take it that way. Matthew seems to suggest that we should be taking it as real, as historical, and he's quoting Jesus. Jesus is saying we should take it as historical and real and trustworthy, that God creating the heavens and the earth is real, that Adam and Eve are direct creations of God, not descended from apes. That's real. That's the words of Jesus. That's the way we're supposed to take them. That he's not referring back to some mythological figure. He's not referring back to some legendary figure. These are real people. In Jesus' understanding, in the words that we have here, spoken by Jesus and written down by Matthew, we're to trust that these things are real. That Adam and Eve were real. Real people. A real man. A real woman. So how about another one? Okay, here's another one. Turn to Luke chapter 11. We looked at Matthew. Now we're looking at Luke. Luke chapter 11, verses 50 and 51. 50 and 51. Jesus is kind of upset right here. <laughs> All right? So we're jumping right into the middle of a conversation where Jesus is upset. But basically, in verses 50 and 51, he says, well, maybe I should back up for one verse. Verse 49. Therefore, the wisdom of God. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. You suppose when Jesus says that the blood of all the prophets, when he says all the prophets, is he talking about real people? <laughs> yeah, it shouldn't be taken any other way. He's talking about real people. There really were prophets that died and had their blood shed. He's talking about real historical figures. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation, verse 51, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. From the blood of Abel. So he was talking about real people. Why would he switch to a mythological figure? Why would he switch from real people to mythological figures? He's not. These are real people. Jesus takes for granted that these are real people. And Luke, faithfully writing these down, takes for granted these are real people. That Genesis is history. They're referring to events that happened in Genesis. So when Jesus is talking about Adam and Eve and the creation and Abel, he is speaking in such a way that he takes it for granted that these are real and expects us to take it for granted that they're real as well. How about another one? How about a crazy one? How about this one? How about Noah? <laughs> How about Noah and a worldwide flood? Oh, come on. Come on, a worldwide flood? We're supposed to actually believe that? Turn to Matthew 24. Going back to Matthew again. Matthew 24. This is Jesus again speaking. Matthew chapter 24, verses 37, 38, and 39. What does it say over there? Jesus is teaching what will happen in the last days. And he speaks, and Matthew writes down in verse 37, But as the days of Noah were... Do you suppose he expects them to understand Noah to be a real figure of history? Yeah, he actually does. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, it sounds like Jesus is expecting us to understand the flood to have been a historical event, and he does. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. Oh, wait, you mean there's really the story about the ark? Come on. You actually expect me to believe that? Well, it doesn't matter what I expect you to believe. It's what Jesus expects you to believe. And here Jesus believes it. If you don't believe that Noah was a historical figure, if you don't believe that the flood was an historical event, then you're in a group outside of which is Jesus. Jesus is in the group that believes those things. 
If you don't believe those things were actual and historical, you're in a different group. So verse 38, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Did you catch that? He is saying that those events in the past are to be considered historical, but that's not his main point. His main point is saying just as much as those events were historical, so the coming of the Son of Man, a future event, will happen. Just as those events happened in the past, you can expect those things in the future to happen. He was speaking to a group that did believe that those things actually happened in the past. And he was appealing to their belief that they understood those things really happened. And he's saying, just as as assured you are of those things that happened in the past, so I speak of the assurance of something yet future. What is that event yet future? Jesus is coming back again, folks. We don't know the day or the hour when he's coming, but he's coming. And he says, it's as sure as happening as those events. And he appeals to Noah and the flood as events that really happened in the past. All right, how about another one? How about Lot? Remember Lot? Sodom, Gomorrah? Oh, no, Jeff. You're going to teach us about Sodom and Gomorrah as if those things really happened? I'm not going to teach you those things. Jesus is. <laughs> right? Go with me to Matthew 10, verse 15. Maybe I should back up a little bit. How about uh, verse 14? We'll back up one verse. Verse 14, then we'll move into 15. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. What's the context here? The context here is Jesus is sending out a group and he's commissioning them to go teach. And he's saying, you go to places, you start teaching, and if, if they don't receive your message, don't hang around. Move on to the next place because there's people that will hear and as he's saying, move on to the next place, he's saying basically, shake off the dust from your feet. Basically, break all ties with those people. Move on to the next place. And he says regarding the people that reject their message, verse 15, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. The city, the people, the population in the city to which they go and they reject the message, Jesus is saying, it's going to be worse for the people of that city than for the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's appealing to the Sodom and Gomorrah story as real. The Sodom and Gomorrah story, do you know that story? That's from the book of Genesis. We're going to cover that. The Sodom and Gomorrah story. Turn also to Luke, uh, along the same lines of this. We're going to look at Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, and I, I want to send you directly. How about verses 28? We'll start in verse 28. Jesus says this, Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. Who was Lot? Lot was Abraham's nephew. Lot was a resident in Sodom. You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were destroyed by God. The judgment of God fell upon those cities in the form of fire and brimstone. All right? So, Likewise, as it was in the, also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He's appealing to the assurance that that happened in the past to say that there's a judgment coming as well. There's a judgment still yet future that's tied and connected to the return of Jesus. 
Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 31, in that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. What? Remember Lot's wife? Do you remember Lot's wife? The story of Sodom and Gomorrah has this, that the angels that were sent by God to rescue Lot and his family, they grab on, they have to actually drag out of the city Lot. He doesn't want to leave. And his daughters, they don't want to leave. And his wife, she doesn't want to leave. And the, the instructions are, don't turn back. Don't look back. Just get out and get out as fast as you can. The angels are dragging them out of the city, basically. And Lot's wife turns and looks back. And it says she becomes a pillar of salt. How ridiculous is that? A pillar of salt. Well, um, Jesus apparently didn't think it was very ridiculous because he actually refers to her, verse 32, remember Lot's wife, as if that really happened. As if that crazy story was actually historical. Do you see what I'm saying here? I'm saying stories like Adam and Eve, that the world was created, that we didn't descend from apes. Abel, Noah, the flood, Lot, Lot's wife, Sodom, that these are to be considered historical. And that when we listen to the voices of society around us telling us, hey, smart people don't believe that kind of stuff, that we're smarter than that nowadays, that the stories you read about in Genesis, those are just fables, they're just myths, they're made up, they're creations of man. That when we listen to the voices that would suggest we follow those ideas, that we believe that about the book of Genesis, that these are not historical stories, we're in a different group than Jesus, than Matthew, than Mark, than Luke or John, Paul or Barnabas or Peter. The teachings of the Bible and these New Testament pillars recording the words of Jesus and Jesus himself would suggest that those are historical events, that those are historical people, that these are people and events rooted in history, that we're to take what we read in Genesis seriously not as some figurative, poetic language, but as the language of narrative as it is written. The structure, the grammar in the original language of Hebrew, it's narrative. It's not poetry. It's not myth. It's not legend. It's history. And Jesus believed it to be history and taught so. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul, Barnabas, and Peter, like I said, they took it to be historical as well. And his audience didn't object whether he was lambasting them or making a point to somebody else or teaching on a, a particular event, they didn't correct him and say, oh, but those are fake. Those were not real. They understood it to be true as well. Even Jesus's enemies understood the teachings of Genesis to be historical. Can we trust Genesis to be true? Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 say this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture, that includes Genesis. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So can we trust Genesis to be true? Well, if you trust any of it, you can trust all of it. If you trust 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you can trust all of it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. If you believe that, then what's the problem? Yes, you can trust it. You can trust Genesis just as you can trust 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is out of the New Testament. Genesis is out of the Old Testament. They're both trustworthy. 
And according to 2 Timothy, when he's talking about all scriptures given by inspiration of God, he's speaking primarily about the Old Testament scriptures there. Jesus trusted the Old Testament scriptures, the Torah. The Torah is oftentimes called the law or translated as the law. It also carries with it, though, the meaning of instruction. All right, We might look at it and use another definition. We might say the Old Testament or the Older Testament or the Old Covenant. All right, So Jesus trusted the Old Testament. That's clear from your readings through the gospel that Jesus trusted the Old Testament. In fact, 11 times Jesus said, have you not read? And usually those were introductory remarks that he was about to introduce a passage from the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Covenant scriptures that he was going to use to make a point. And so he would be calling upon the people in his audience, have you not read? It was assumed that yes, they had read and that he was calling to their remembrance what they had read. And like I said, that was that's used 11 times to refer back to those Old Testament scriptures as being authoritative. 30 times he uses the phrase, it is written, or at least the way it's translated into English, it is written. And that's in reference to an Old Testament passage that he would have his audience call back to mind about what they had read in the Old Covenant, that he would use that scripture to make a point. All right? So clearly Jesus trusted the Old Testament scripture. Matthew 5, 17 and 18 says this, Do not think, these are the words of Jesus here, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, referring to the Old Covenant, referring to the, the scriptures that we would call the Old Testament. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verse 18, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Jesus trusted the Old Testament scriptures and even said that not even the smallest little stroke of a pen would pass away until all was fulfilled. How about another one? John chapter 5, Jesus talking to a rather hostile group. And he ends up saying in the end of chapter 5 here, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify about me. What is he referring to? Is he referring to what we would call the New Testament? No, he's not. He's actually referring to what they already had established as scriptures. He's referring to what we would call the Old Covenant, the Old Scriptures. So he's saying you search the scriptures, talking about the Old Testament, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these, the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures, are they which testify about me. And then in verse 46 and 47, he says this. This is how the chapter ends. Verses 46 and 47. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So clearly, Jesus relied upon, trusted the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Covenant. Another verse, another passage that's relevant here in this discussion. It's this. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He's speaking of a time that will come when the hearers will not listen to truth anymore. When the hearers will turn away from truth, turn to lies. Here's what it says. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. It's about worldviews. And as we move through the book of Genesis, you may find your worldview is challenged. You may find the worldview that you've grown up with or that's been instilled in you, that you've been taught while you were in school, may not coincide with what we run across in the Word of God. And so my challenge to you is this. Have an open mind to what you're hearing and ask yourself, who are you going to believe? 
Are you going to believe the voices of the society around you or are you going to believe the word of God? When it comes down to it, when there's a clash of worldviews and you have to pick one of those, be careful which one you pick because there are eternal ramifications. Again, I'm just touching on these lightly. There's going to be more discussion on these things in future studies as we move through the material. So we're in good company if we believe and take the words of Genesis seriously, if we believe them to be historical. But woe to us if we align ourselves with company that would not believe and not take seriously the words of Genesis as teaching of historical people in historical settings and talking about historical events. And so with that, I close basically the first lesson that we gave, the introduction to the book of Genesis. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. This time of quietness and this time of reflection and this time of hearing from you. We pray that you would help us to separate your still small voice, the whispering and testimony of your spirit in our lives and in our hearts, that these are the words of truth. And the words of the world and the devil himself would try to drown it out with saying, no, you can't believe that. No, it's not true. And try to suggest to us that we should believe anything else other than your word that these were historical people, historical settings, historical events, as taught by Jesus himself. Help us to align ourselves, not with the world, but with Jesus himself, the Son of God and participant in the creation. Be glorified, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.